0: In 1994, two men had their eye on an auction. It was a Sotheby's auction, the house famous for selling Cartier jewels and art by Andy Warhol and Picasso. You don't need to know the buyers' names for this story, but it's really too good of a detail to leave out. Their names were Ira Brilliant and Che Guevara. Not that Che Guevara, a different one. (laughs) Ira and Che were not interested In bidding on a painting or anything like that, they were interested in a pretty unusual item. In comparison to other Sotheby's auctions, it was also pretty cheap. The opening bid was set for £2,000 or around $4,000 in today's money. The bidding began. It's not unusual for a bidding war to break out at Sotheby's. One of those Andy Warhol paintings sold for nearly $19 million. In 2012, Edvard Monk's The Scream sold for a record 120 million. But on this day, back in 1994, it was a much quieter affair. The bidding closed in a matter of minutes, and Ira and Che had succeeded. They bought their coveted item for just £3,600, around 8,000 in today's money. Ira and Che were now the proud owners. Of a single lock of hair. It was a lock of hair from the head of none other than Ludwig von Beethoven. I'm Dylan Thuris, and this is Atlas Obscura, a celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. Today, we follow that lock of Beethoven's hair all the way to the Library of Congress, where it joins dozens of other locks of hair. We comb through that collection after this. along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. Next, don't give it to you. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Let's go give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric CDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. When most people come to visit the Library of Congress, they're usually interested in seeing things like Thomas Jefferson's rough draft of the Declaration of Independence or Lincoln's draft of the Emancipation Proclamation. But it turns out one of the most visited parts of the Library of Congress is an entire wing dedicated to its collection of hair. From floor to ceiling, it is display case after display case full of braids and locks of hair, filing cabinets, hair spilling out of drawers, and they call it the Hall of Hair.
1: There is not a Hall of Hair. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
0: So I got a little carried away. Uh, You can't blame me. Unfortunately, there is not actually a Hall of Hair, but there is a surprisingly large collection of hair in the Library of Congress. This is Michelle Crowell, by the way. She is a Civil War and Reconstruction Specialist in the Manuscripts Division of the Library.
1: I was going to do a presentation on hair in our collections. Some of my colleagues were a little like, oh, you know, you're touching this hair. That's a little gross. But, you know, everybody's got their comfort levels in terms of (laughs) those sorts of things, too.
0: (laughs) Hair is a funny thing. We value and cherish it. We run our fingers through our loved ones' and partners' hair. We smooth down and comb the hair of our children. We braid it with gentle, loving care. It's all romantic, kind of intimate, all until the moment it is severed from the owner's head, at which point the hair becomes kind of a weird, gross thing that we are trying to get rid of. Unless, of course, you work at the Library of Congress. Here's Michelle again.
1: There's a couple of collections where there are entire folders that are just envelopes full of hair, and 19th century is sort of the zenith of hair collecting. It's very fashionable and popular to do so.
0: That's right. Back in the 19th century, collecting hair was a real thing.
1: For one thing, it's something that you can clip without pain. For for the most part, for most people, it will grow back unless, of course, you're talking about a corpse, because sometimes you do have corpse hair and that is not going to be a a renewable resource. But then again, that person will not necessarily be needing it in the future.
0: And while a lot of the hair in these collections was sourced from friends and family, people also collected the hair of famous people. Photography did exist in the 19th century, but it wasn't that common, and this collecting of hair was a little like getting someone's autograph, a way to hold on to a tiny piece of someone you admired.
1: So you wouldn't necessarily have a photograph of a famous person or a loved one, but you might be able to get a a sample of their hair. It was almost like autographs or selfies today that you might collect hair from someone famous.
0: As Beethoven lay dying in 1827, a young composer came to pay his respects. The composer's name was Ferdinand Hiller, and after Beethoven died, he snipped off a lock of his hair. The hair became a Hiller family heirloom for a century, passed down through generations. Eventually, the Hiller family put the hair up for auction at Sotheby's, where Ira Brilliant and Che Guevara bought it there were 582 strands of individual hair in that lock. Alfredo Che Guevara kept 160, and Ira kept 422 strands. Ira's share of the lock is what ended up at the Ira F. Brilliant Center for Beethoven Studies at the San Jose State University. But 26 strands eventually made their way to the Library of Congress. Beethoven's hair is just one of many historical figures locks in the library. They've got the hair of Walt Whitman, this whitish tangle that looks like it came straight out of the hairbrush. They've got a braid from James Madison that's shiny, thick, chestnut brown. And they've got the locks of a certain famous war general, too.
1: We've got a lock of Ulysses S. Grant's hair from June of 1864. He's the commander of the Union armies. You know, it's a very stressful position. He's got a lot of responsibilities, but he remembered that his wife asked him for a lock of his hair. So he went and got it cut. And so he sent her a letter. And we still have the hair. It's a long enough lock of hair that you know that he had, you know, nice brown hair. And it's still that color now.
0: Hair is surprisingly easy to care for once it's off your head. It doesn't need to be kept under special light or temperature conditions. And at the Library of Congress, it's mostly just kept in folders. And unless it's been chemically treated, hair that you snip off your head will stay the same color and texture for years and years and years.
1: It's almost like a snapshot in time. That's you or your loved one or whoever it is at that moment in time in terms of the color, the sort of coarseness of it, whether it's curly, whether it's straight, whether it's gray, the hair that you grow on the top of your head. It's something that captures you at a moment in time.
0: To think that you could hold a bit of Beethoven's hair in your hand, to know that this lock is what it looked and felt like at the moment when he was composing Symphony Number no. 5. It's like reaching across time, creating a direct line of contact with a famous mind that has long since gone. But the Library of Congress has more than just the hair of famous people. They've also got locks from dozens and dozens of just normal, everyday people. People whose stories I never would have learned without stumbling upon this lock of hair. Stories of people like John Arnold, a soldier who fought for the Union during the Civil War.
1: He was a soldier from Pennsylvania who served in the Army of the Potomac in Virginia. And so he was away from his family. His wife was back home on the home front.
0: The Arnolds had several children, including a couple who were born during the war, likely right before John left for service. And John could read and write, but his wife Marianne couldn't. So anytime she wanted to communicate with him, she had to rely on a friend or a neighbor to write for her. Still, John wanted to hear from her often, and he craved news from home.
1: John Arnold is always asking her to send photographs of the children, and she doesn't have the money for a photograph. But what she can do is she can clip a little lock, or, you know, a few strands of the baby's hair, and she can clip some other hair from another one of their children and enclose it in a letter to her husband.
0: No expensive photograph, no need to fetch a neighbor to help write a letter, just a single lock of hair that says it all. Marianne's letters were saved by the family, along with the clips of hair sent along with them. And eventually, the entire collection wound up at the Library of Congress. You can still see two bits of the Arnold children's hair today. In one, a couple inches of this very fine, dirty blonde hair is wrapped in a newspaper clipping. It's so thin and feathered, it looks like it's going to blow away. The second lock is a little finer. It's braided. It's bright, blonde, and long. Maybe the springtime haircut of a daughter getting ready to welcome the warm weather. I can imagine John Arnold out there on a cold night during the war, hunkered down in an encampment. There's a long night ahead. He's got no letter to read. But instead, he pulls out the locks of hair of his kids and can feel like they were there with him.
1: In the case of John Arnold... He didn't make it through the war. He was killed in April of 1865, just a few days before he surrendered Appomattox. So he never saw those children again, but he did have those that lock of hair. In the absence of a likeness of the children, he had this tangible piece of his children with him in the field.
0: Symphony number 5 is iconic, and Beethoven's hair is a connection to that famous musical mind. But it's the stories of these children's hair that get to me. I've got kids of my own, and I have absolutely saved locks of both of their hair. There's something so sentimental about it, and I, of course, get why the Library of Congress has a hair collection. There is something about what a lock of hair means It is this deeply intimate connection to a specific person at a specific moment in time.
1: The thing about hair is it is very intimate. It is something that is part of of your body, in essence. It's memory in some ways, too. If you're getting your baby's first haircut, it's going to be that very fine hair of a baby. If you're looking back at it 20 years later and they're graduating from high school or college or something, it's that memory of this was a tangible connection to that person at that moment in time.
0: This episode was produced by
1: Johanna Mayer.
0: This episode was edited by John DeLore. Our podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Witness Docs. The production team includes Doug Baldinger, Chris Naka,
1: Camille Stanley,
0: Willis Ryder-Arnold,
1: Sarah Wyman, Manolo Morales,
0: Baudelaire Seuss,
1: Gianna Palmer, Tracy Samuelson, John
0: DeLore. Our technical director is Casey Holford. This episode was mixed by Luce Fleming. If you want to learn more, be sure to visit atlasobscura.com. There's a link in our episode description. Our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall. All right, love. I'm going to cut one piece of your hair so that I can remember you by it. Let's see. I don't want mama to get too mad at me. Why? <laughs> I don't want it to mess up your haircut. All right. Can you say one, two, three? One, two, three. Got it. Look. What is that? Here. Here. Don't drop it on the ground. (laughs) Okay, bye. I'm Dylan Thuris, wishing you all the wonder in the world. I will see you
1: soon. Witness Docs from Stitcher.